News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah this week. Well, there has been no shortage of stories about chaos at airports in this country. Both Air Canada and WestJet coming up. But coming in quite high on the list of airlines with the most flight delays, flight cancellations, we've also been hearing a lot about lost luggage and people wondering uh, what kind of action they can take or what rights they have as passengers if their luggage doesn't make it to their destination. So let's check in with travel industry expert Marty Firestone. He joins us now. Martin Firestone is the president of Travel Secure and also a travel insurance expert. Great to have you back on the program. Thank you for having me. Uh, what is the first advice that, that you give people who are still planning to travel? Let's talk about lost luggage first, because we've seen the pictures and the footage of bags that are at destinations where they shouldn't have gone. They're in the wrong place. As a passenger, what kind of rights do you have? What do you do in that scenario if your bags get lost? Yeah, we are going through unprecedented times. We've ne- never seen anything like this. You used to walk by the carousel, there'd be three or four bags off to the side that were from an earlier flight. You now have mountains, mountains of suitcases and luggage. Bottom line, if you could take uh, carry-on, wouldn't that be wonderful? But as far as your rights go, you make a claim, but nothing is quick anymore. To sit on the phone, that's three hours, five hours. You may never even get through. The best thing to do is keep receipts. And I'll tell you why. If you have travel insurance and you bought baggage insurance, you are allowed X amount of dollars to buy essentials immediately, depending on where you are and what country. And then you can claim that back. But it's a long process. And whether the bag is delayed, how many hours, how many days are ultimately lost, that all comes into play with respect to your claim. So nothing is simple, and it's really a problem at this point. And is it the airlines, individual airlines, or how much, if somebody is in that scenario and they're, they're purchasing essentials and because they've not got their bag, is there a, a ceiling or a, how much uh, people can spend to, and, yeah. and know that they're still going to be reimbursed? Right. So I I can only talk from an insurance perspective for the moment because that's what I do. There is uh, in the wording contractually that you're allowed to, believe it or not, spend up to $900 per person for essentials. Well, that's a lot of toothpaste. <laughs> so, um, but, but you can. And in fact, international trip that I just came back from, bags were delayed in Santorini. And I did make a claim and I could put upwards of 900 for bathing suit shorts, things like that. And it does pay and it does work. With respect to the airlines, not sure exactly what their dollar limit is, but you have to be able to be reimbursed for certain things you need. And does it matter how long the bags are lost? I know in, in some rare cases, bags never show up, but does it matter if it's a day late or five days late? Yeah, so that's a great question. Uh, after six hours, and again, with the insurance product, it triggers that ability for you to go out and buy essentials up to 900 Ultimately, if the bag is totally lost, then there's compensation for all the items that were in it. That's about 21 days. It's considered totally lost. Hmm. And uh, we're seeing this, like you said, we're seeing kind of unprecedented uh, amounts uh, of this. Uh, and I, I think people are, are taking that advice of don't put anything really valuable in your, in your bag ever because you, you don't know that you're going to see it on the other, the other end of things. Uh, is there anything else as far as I would imagine connecting flights, giving more time? I know some of the airlines have even changed their recommendations on how much time you have between the flights. Does that g- give you at least a better chance of your bag making it if you have connecting flights? 
no doubt if it's got more time in between avoid connecting flights wherever possible that's exactly where the problems start again talking personally it was tel aviv to athens to santorini that was my problem had i gone direct from tel aviv to santorini as an example i would never have lost my bags the problem came there was not enough time in between flights to get the bag on the next flight there is the major problem with losing bags when there's a connection involved All right. You mentioned as well phone lines and you could be on the phone for hours trying to work things out. What do you do in that scenario if you you just don't have the time to sit on the phone for three hours and you can't reach the airline? Yeah. And don't waste your time. There's no way you're going to get through. That's how bad it is. I would keep dialogue, a diary of everything I've done, every cost I've, I've put out, receipts of everything. And when this blows over, and this is not blowing over till after summer, I assure you, that's when you will attempt to get online and try to get back some reimbursements. There is no point sitting on the phone now. You will only be more frustrated than you are as you wait, wait, and wait, and then all of a sudden the line goes dead and they hung up on you. It's, it's just not the time to make your claims right now. All right. Uh, I I had that happen even before all of this uh, chaos started. So I'm sure that's uh, unfortunately happening uh, to people as well, uh, even more. Um, Marty, what about cancelled flights and delayed flights uh, to the point where maybe you missed a connection, you missed a hotel reservation, you missed a cruise that you were going on? What do people do in that scenario? Yeah, very much so. And, 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 and insurance is playing a role that it never has before. It used to be strictly medical, unexpected emergency. Now you need trip interruption in the event that your trip gets interrupted, i.e. you don't make the next flight, therefore you don't get to that country, and you have a hotel room that has a 100% non-refundable amount on it. This is the kind of thing you need to be able to go back to the insurance company and say, I did not get to that destination. I did not get to the hotel that night. I put out $1,000. Now I need to be reimbursed. That's the only way you're going to get reimbursement. Fighting with the airlines over this is not going to get you back your costs that you paid for that were non-refundable, I assure you. So everybody be wise to take out trip cancellation, trip interruption, and baggage insurance now when they're planning trips. And how much is that going to cost, generally speaking, or how much does that add to the the price of your trip if you're taking out that, that much insurance? Okay, so trip cancellation is roughly about 6 to 7% of the total sum insured. So if you were insuring a $10,000 trip, that could be a $700 premium as an example. Trip interruption is embedded in that. It's no extra cost. That's a, that's a package. Baggage itself could be $85, which would allow you to claim up to $1,500 in expenses and costs and things like that. So it, it's not crazy. It's who's kidding who. It's just one of those necessary evils again where you've got to buy it. But if you need it, boy, are you happy that you bought it. That's for sure. And you mentioned that this isn't uh, the scenario that we're seeing unfold at airports isn't going to be uh, changing anytime soon, at least not for the summer. Uh, Do you think it will? I mean, is it a matter of they need to hire more staff and, and figure out what's going on that things will improve? It's no doubt that staff uh, growth has to happen, but it's not going to happen overnight, nor are you going to press a button and instantly going to get people. Right now, the biggest problem was, and I'm sticking by this, the amount of travel increased so dramatically because of the restrictions being removed and other various things, but the infrastructure was not ready to handle that flow of traffic. And the trouble is we can't get back on our feet again. We almost need to get through the summer, have somewhat of a lull before winter travel again, and then hopefully everything will work out at that point. All right. Uh, Martin Firestone, always great to talk with you. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you, Jill. Thanks for having me. This is Mornings with Simi.
Well, earlier this week, we talked about a global news investigation taking a look at a group home in Ontario and some questions about the treatment of youth, the young people at the home, and those operating the Connor Homes. Well, Carolyn Jarvis is joining us once again, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Global News. Carolyn, thanks so much for coming back on the program. Oh, it's a pleasure to talk about this. Thanks, Jill. Well, I know there are, are more uh, segments, some more parts to this story that are also available online for people now. Some heartbreaking, heartbreaking accounts of what was happening there. Can you talk a little bit about what we're learning or what, what's in this newest installment of this piece? Yeah, it starts with the story of Liam Smith, who tragically lost his mother at 13 years of age. It was just three days before his grade 8 graduation. Um, he didn't have a good relationship with his stepfather. His biological father was not in the picture and things didn't work out with his grandparents. And so not long after he was put into the child welfare system and landed up on the doorstep of Connor Holmes. He said things were so rough there after a time that he tried taking his life three times. Someone who he says prior to losing his mom didn't struggle with any mental health issues, but things were so rough on this house in this home that To him, the thought of staying there any longer was simply unbearable. There was nothing to do. Part of it was just sheer boredom. You know, you weren't allowed screens. You weren't allowed Wi-Fi. You can imagine a teenager these days without access to a phone or a computer. They didn't have money for any activities. And there was just simply nothing. Um, And he just couldn't bear living there. He said that in these homes, and this is not necessarily unique to Connor Homes, because I've heard of it reported elsewhere, um, that they had a, a level system or a point system that graded you on every aspect of your existence in the home. Did you make your bed? You got a certain number of points. Uh, Did you come down for breakfast? You got a certain number of points. And he said, you know, my mom died. And so if I had a bad mental health day because I was feeling low about my circumstance in life and who could blame him, he'd be deducted points. And when you're deducted points, whatever limited freedoms you had would be clawed back even further. So in his case, an extremely rare chance to see his half-brother at the local zoo was cancelled because he didn't have enough points that week. Or if you could stay up until 9.30, your points would be clawed back if you weren't good enough and you had to go to bed at 8 o'clock at night for a teenager, he would say. And so he just found life in these homes so challenging. So we talk about Liam Smith's story, a first-time account, which is, you know, we worked hard to reach out to somebody and gain their trust such that they felt comfortable enough to share their personal story with us at, at a risk to them because it's, it really does expose um, themselves by speaking out like this. A lot of people don't want to be identified as, quote, group home kids. Mm, yeah. But Ian felt compelled to speak out about his circumstances. Well, it's certainly, I mean, reading his account and looking at the piece and some of the conditions in some of the homes as well. Uh, this installment also talks a bit about the owners, a numbered company as well, listed as as part of the ownership. What have you been able to find out about the, the running of these homes and, and how that operated? Well, we've heard that these homes were private for-profit companies and that in some cases, workers tell us money was a huge motivator here. Uh, you know, we've obtained documents through Sean Connor's divorce records, Sean Connor being the son of Bob Connor, who is the owner of the company, that showed that there was a very sophisticated layering of numbered companies. I'm curious that they were numbered companies that weren't actually even called Connor Homes on paper. It was 132644 and 132455, names that are very hard to trace down and find fingerprints for easily, especially for the layperson. And this layering of companies, the court documents suggest, is allowed both the father and son to take a cut 
of the money that was, in essence, intended to go to foster parents and kids or group home operators and kids. Um, And what people allege to us on the ground is that they were not seeing the money flow to them. Really what's supposed to happen is, you know, in a for-profit system, they're allowed to make money. But in this circumstance, kids say they weren't seeing that money. All right. Well, Carolyn, it's uh, it's such an important story. And uh, thank you so much for joining us. And people can read more about it at uh, the website. But thank you so much for your time. Great to chat with you again this morning. Thanks, Jill. This is Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi this week. Well, as you just heard on the news, Vancouver City Council has rescheduled the latest public hearing. This has to do with a controversial and long-delayed development plan for the commercial Broadway Skytrain station area. And they've put that forward until about the end of the year. So that means it will most definitely be happening after the next civic election. We're talking about the proposal to redevelop what's being referred to as the Safeway and adjacent parking lot parcel of land. So let's talk a little bit more about this with Kit Souter, co-chair of the Vancouver Renters Advisory Committee. Kit, thanks so much for making the time for us this morning. Absolutely, Jill. Happy to be here. What are your thoughts on the fact that this project has been, at least uh, the, the latest public hearing, has been pushed forward to the end of the year? I'll tell you what, Joe, I'm not happy. I'm, I'm really unimpressed. And uh, this is a complete dereliction of duty by the council, a complete inability for them to be able to do the basics of their job. Um, just to be clear for the listeners, your city councils are responsible for reviewing and approving building permits on land inside of the city. That's the main job. It's not reconciliation. It's not environmental protection. It's not trade promotion. It's not recruiting FIFA or the Olympics. Those are all things that we would like to see our city hall doing, but their job every day is to make sure that when people come into the city of Vancouver, they have a clear line of sight on how to invest. They have an opportunity to um, bring in their family, build in their community, and this council, this mayor, are failing to do their job. And this particular project, uh, it's been, uh, I think, what was the, what was it, uh, if we look at the math of it, if it does go ahead, so it's after the next civic election, that's going to be three governments or three civic councils that have dealt with this particular development plan and, and, and dealing with some of, uh, some of the uh, contentious issues around this. What are your thoughts, though, as far as the, the need for this plan and the need that this, house, that this plan, as far as housing, that it would deliver to the city? Yeah, so we're already at five and a half years, Jill, and it's being punted to December 16th. So um, based on the opposition that we've seen in Grandview Woodland to this proposal, we've already had two uh, initial hearings on this uh, project in which we've seen it scaled back. We've seen two floors knocked off of a number of the projects. We've seen dozens and dozens of daycare spaces. We've seen dozens of homes eliminated. Uh, On a reminder, a um, mid-rise density construction on what is a parking lot beside a subway tunnel at most importantly what is about to become the busiest transit hub in canada but because this project's being punted again going into the sixth year now we're seeing uh, the possibility that this gets delayed even further um you just had the market news update we're seeing another uh, 75 basis point bump um, being considered for next month in the united states 
Uh, Canada is looking at tracking, as we often do, on those basis points. When prime lending goes up, the cost of doing these projects goes up. And this fundamentally undermines the ability for us to build at pace and scale because only the largest lenders, only the largest builders can survive spending a decade waiting to be able to get market conditions that will allow them to be able to build. And so we're losing homes. We're losing 93 market affordable rentals that we very badly need, right? Below market affordable rents put on, put on ice. We're losing 345 market rentals. We're losing 250 condos. And so we've already seen the floor space uh, slice back because the neighbors in Grandview Woodland who have fought against any form of growth for nearly 30 years were afraid of the shadows that would fall on Grandview Highway and a cutaway for the subway. It does kind of make you wonder if you can't get approval or get people to buy into a project that's at a transit station, like you said, that's at what is a very busy, what is becoming and will be a very busy transit line and a transit station. Uh, If you've got so much pushback that the council doesn't even want to touch it, if you can't get that project done, what can you get done? Well, that's exactly right, Jill. And, And at the end of the day, this is about political posturing over actions on affordability. Every single member of this council mayor and all 10 councillors, ran and won on a commitment to tackling housing affordability. Every single party, all five parties, all 11 members of council, and they're failing, right? We've barely seen 7,500 units of housing uh, approved, not built, approved over the course of the last calendar year. It's been below 7,500 on average every year of this council term. The provincial government mandates a housing needs report now, um, and Vancouver had its done last year. And it showed that we had 86,600 units of deficit, right? 86,000 Vancouverites are underhoused. And in order to close that gap, we would have to build 14,400 units a year for the next 15 years. We're not even halfway there, Jill. And when we have a council that punts because they're afraid of the opposition to growth, the opposition to living in a city that is present in Grandview Woodland, The Grandview Woodland Local Area Plan is specifically designed to halt growth of any kind, and it's working because Grandview Woodland has the same population today as it did in 1996. But guess what? The number of seniors who live alone has increased by more than 28%. The number of families with children has collapsed by more than 30%. Grandview Woodland, which used to be an iconic working-class neighborhood in the city of Vancouver, is a shell of itself today because of what are now paper millionaires living in houses that they want to see the value increase on without any neighbors being introduced. Commercial drive is hollowed out. The business cases for our transit infrastructure and for gentrification on the east side for our businesses are being completely undermined. And we are having to watch our councils contort themselves to try and accommodate growth for businesses on commercial drive by refusing to do smart public policy because the neighbors in those neighborhoods, and it's a tiny minority, Jill, most of the people in Grandview Woodland don't even know this is going on, but they are fighting tooth and nail to freeze their neighborhood and the city in amber. 0% growth over 25 years, where the city has grown by more than 30%, and the region has almost increased by 43% since 1996. It's a shame and a travesty.
Uh, and Kit, uh, I want to ask you uh, quickly as well, we've only got a couple of minutes left. Uh, this project, we know the public hearing has now been postponed. I wanted to ask you as well, though, the, the mayor is talking about expanding this idea of protection for renters, uh, for renters that are displaced by development that can come back. Uh, one of the questions that comes up is, if this is such a great idea, why aren't we seeing it done more often and seeing it in practice? Does this kind of protection, does it work? Yeah, so I mean... Um we had our working group meeting with the Renters Advisory Committee last week. Um, we will be having our uh, official meeting and possibly the last one of our term um, on July 13th. Um, and so we'll be putting forward a, a large schedule of proposed amendments and policies for this council and the next council to consider in the context of the Vancouver plan and other protections for renters and uh, expanding the renters protections that we saw introduced under the Broadway plan um, to allow right of return, right of first refusal on a similar unit to the one that you previously inhabited if you're renovated or demovicted um, is absolutely something that we're going to be championing. The reason that we haven't seen this uh, historically is because we didn't have Uh, quite frankly, the land pressures that we have now. We didn't have the backlog of construction and we had alternative policy solutions that might have worked better 30 years ago, but certainly don't work today, right? So when we're talking about things like traditionally, folks would all be familiar with the idea of rent control. Um, Rent control doesn't work if inflation is over 5%, right? Rent control doesn't work if what you end up doing is have um, a landlord, a good landlord, trying to make sure that they maintain the property and you have stable and predictable rents and a place that you can live and is repairing places, has to sell to a slumlord because um, they can't keep up with the cost of maintenance, right? And so um, you can't have hardline rent controls and still have market-based rentals. And you could have those protections in place when the federal government was building thousands and thousands and thousands of affordable rental units and co-ops back in the 1970s through to the early 1990s But that hasn't been the case for 25 years. And so what we need to do now is we need to do exactly what was proposed under the commercial Broadway Safeway site proposal, right? We had 93 below market affordable rentals that were subsidized by 345 permanent market rentals and 215 for sale condos, right? Right. So what we're doing is we're hybridizing the construction. So the people who have the most can purchase in, people who have a little bit less can rent in a stable environment in a mixed income community. And those who need a little bit of societal support get that support without ever having to be shown that they are less than, that they have a loss of dignity. They get to be part of a mixed community in a vibrant location, accessible to transit, close to jobs, so that they have a chance to build up their own decency and dignity in their community with no shame and no repercussions. And that is the path forward with these kinds of protections. All right, Kit, we're going to have to leave it there for today. Thanks so much for your time, though. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jill. Have a great day. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, time to take a closer look at some of those numbers when we're talking about real estate. And the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver says, as you've been hearing in the news, last month's home sales dropped by about 35% since last June and 16% from May of 2022. This as houses remained on the market longer. And of course, we are seeing interest rates rise. So joining us to talk a bit more about this is Daniel John, chair of the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver. Vancouver. Thank you so much for making some time for us this morning. Good morning, Jill. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. 
Well, thank you for doing this. Talk a little bit about the numbers. What are you seeing that's leading to, we'll start with the the drop in last month's home sales, that drop of about 35%. Well, uh, what we're seeing is uh, home buyer activity is, in fact, decreasing. Uh, and that's allowing more home listings to accumulate on the marketplace. And and a lot of the home buyers now are, are more cautious in today's market uh, due to that rising interest rate and, and really inflationary concerns as well. What is this doing then to the actual prices if we're seeing sales dropping, but is that having an impact as well on the prices that we're seeing for homes? So we are trending uh, downward, um, uh, but because the shocks are so, once once there's a new um, interest rate that, that comes up or there's an anticipation of something, uh, it really takes a, a while for especially the real estate market to adjust. Uh, so we've only seen about a 2% uh, decrease uh, in prices over the last three months here in, in, in the greater Vancouver area. Um, so that's kind of what it's doing to prices. We are seeing, uh, we are believing that it's going to be trending downward, however, uh, due to those inflationary and rising interest rate concerns. Right. So, so a big difference then if we're looking at sales numbers and, and prices. But do, do you think, like you said, that it will continue with the downward trend? Any idea? I know you can't predict the future, but do you have a kind of a, do we, do we have an idea on how much we're going to see as far as a decrease in prices? Well, we can't, we can't really predict that. Uh, I wish we could, um, uh, but we, we just, <laughs> we, we just, there's so many uh, factors. So we're, we're looking at last year's historic June, uh, June 2021, uh, where we have to really think about the, the, the environment at the time. The interest rate at the time was a lot lower. Um, we were still under uh, uncertainty around COVID and, 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 and everyone's kind of getting back to work and, and, and starting to travel again uh, for the first time in many years. So um, that that's kind of where we're, it is just very hard to predict to where we are going, but uh, as of right now, the last three months, we have been trending, uh, the prices have been trending uh, about 2.2% downward over the last three months. And when we look at those numbers then again of listings and the drop when we're looking at numbers of listings, uh, what is that doing then as far as supply? Obviously not as many uh, listings, not as many homes on the market, but is that people as well that are just kind of hanging on and not sure, kind of waiting to see what the market does? Or is it also because there's not as many buyers because of the interest rates and because of people that are being priced out? Uh, Listings actually have been just is slightly increasing month over month, um, um, but the, the the activity and the demand on the it's it's on the um, uh, in conditions like this prices you know will will decline slowly, but as supply and demand uh, this imbalance right now is definitely on the demand side on the buyer side. Um, we're we're still needing to increase supply, um, uh, interest rates and inflationary concerns as as a whole in Metro Vancouver are still we're still very undersupplied and a recent CMHC report found that BC and in Canada in general isn't building enough housing supply to meet that long term demand. So uh, BC alone needs to add more than half a million homes to the protected current number of new homes being built by 2030 in order to close that gap. So that's less than eight years away. Uh, an extra half a million homes are, are needed. And do you think there's any chance that's going to happen? 
Uh, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> hopefully, um, uh, but we'll, we'll see. We'll, we'll work. Uh, we'll, we'll try and get everyone uh, to to try and increase that supply uh, so that um, we can uh, bring this market back to more of a balanced market. And when we talk about the need for uh, ha- uh, that many new homes and, and the supply to go up, are, are you talking about a specific specific type of home or are we looking at uh, detached uh, single family? What what types of homes are we looking at there? Um, just for density, if you look at other cities uh, in the world, uh, you're looking at more um, at density. So uh, it'd be more apartment and, and attached homes uh, just so we can fit more people on, on less land. Right. And and how is Vancouver doing or BC doing? Do you look at it compared to other provinces or other cities in Canada to see kind of how BC is doing compared to the rest of the country? Um, I, I don't have those. Uh, it, I, I believe we do. I just don't have those in front of me. So uh, you can contact. Uh, we just definitely reach out to us and, and we can get you that, that information uh, as as soon as we can. Sure, absolutely. Uh, let's talk a little bit more, though, about interest rates and with high inflation. And it doesn't appear that there's going to be, uh, we're going to see a correction or we're going to see things come down in the short-term future. So what does that mean then, again, for uh, buyers that will be priced out or people that just won't be able to maybe make moves in real estate? What kind of an impact do you think that's going to have on the market? Um, it, it's going to be the toughest on, on first-time home buyers, uh, I believe, just because the money's really expensive and um, the, 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 the prices of, 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 of real estate are, are more expensive than, than ever. Um, but while we, it's important for both um, you know, the buyers and sellers to understand you know, shifts in today's market when, when looking to the buy or sell that home, and it's it's really hard um, to to predict that, um, but I, I believe that you know in this changing market, definitely you know work with your local realtor, uh, do your due diligence, help you know coordinate on the financial side for you to get your mortgage, and 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 really be in communication with everyone because it doesn't mean that you're you're priced out. It just means that you just you know each individual situation is is. You, you need to work with your, your, your mortgage professional and your realtor uh, to, to hopefully be able to get you in this market. Right, because I would imagine too, like you say, for first-time home buyers, it's it's more more difficult. I mean, it's, it seems it's always kind of the most difficult, or a lot of the difficulty is for home time, uh, first first-time uh, home buyers, and uh, with the current conditions, making it even more difficult. Yeah, it, and it, it's it's unfortunate, but that's that's just uh, we 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 do do our best. Uh, we we try and and just you have to build the right team around you, right? So have the right mortgage professional, have the right realtor, um, and, and be able to uh, help navigate your individual, especially with first time home buyers. You need them to help educate you uh, in order to get you in in this market. And uh, Daniel, I know we've been talking about Metro Vancouver, but uh, I don't know if you have uh, the numbers or ideas. When we look kind of outside of Metro Vancouver, we look at the the province as a whole, or even the, the Fraser Valley, are we seeing kind of the same trends there as well as far as what's happening with the markets and prices? Um, I believe it's, it's, it's an uh, over, I can speak overall. Uh, I know Fraser Valley 
the prices have been declining. I don't have those numbers in, in front of me, but they've, they've also been declining the last three months. But a lot, the prices have come down a lot more than uh, in Metro Vancouver. Um, and then uh, the, the province, I believe, is also seeing a shift. Um, but I can't speak to those. I'm, I'm just here today to speak to the, the greater Vancouver numbers here. No, absolutely. Well, thank you yeah. so much, Daniel, for uh, walking through those numbers uh, with us and taking a look at what's happening uh, with real estate in greater Vancouver. Uh, we'll leave it there, but thanks again so much for your time. Yeah, I appreciate you having me. All right, take care. You too. That is Daniel John, chair of the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver.